All right, all right, let's go ahead and take our seats. You can open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This morning's reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Hear the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I like the, I like the reader response. You know, when you're in the South and people talk to you. This is good. Midwest, man. You got you to look for a pulse. It takes a little while. Uh, my name is Sean Powers, um, pastor of Redemption Hill Church, located in the Des Moines metro. It's a great privilege to be here. I was here last year. I make two trips, three trips a year, in the last two years at least. It's, uh, two of them are for denominational reasons. In the last two years, I've been coming here to Apex, and I love it. I love coming here. I don't want to travel more, but where I do travel, I do with intentionality, and I appreciate the friendships and the fellowship that I do have and, and uh, the partnership that we have within Trinity. So it's good to see you. Uh, Daniel had mentioned that I live in a horse farm. <clears throat> One short story, and then we'll just dive into the serious stuff. But I didn't, I didn't grow up a horse person. Like, I married into it, and I, and I thought that when you marry someone who does the horse thing, it's like, you know, you grow out of it. Like, a person who graduates from high school and they played basketball. Like, I'm too short. I'm not fast. That was going to end. Well, 15 years later, that's clearly not the case, and I'm, I'm thoroughly in the horse world, and about three years ago, I asked my wife, this is before we moved, can I get a pair of boots? And she's like, no, that would make you a poser. I'm like, okay, and then we moved to the horse farm, and then I said, I'm getting a pair of boots. <laughs> I'm no longer the poser, so that's, that's like our life in a nutshell in the last, I don't know, month and a half, so, but by God's grace, he's been providing for us. All right, if you are a note taker, the title of this sermon is Adoption and Assurance, Adoption and Assurance, not insurance, assurance. In 2021, I took Redemption Hill Church through the uh, book of Ephesians. And when I go through a book of the Bible, it's not uncommon for me to like, tap the brakes and realize, you know, we've got to slow down a little bit. And so I did that in, verse, in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And we spent about eight or nine sermons just, just looking at every theological stone within this particular section of Ephesians 1. And it was It was amazing. God says so much in this particular chapter and in these particular verses. And I want to share with you this morning some of the stones that we looked at. Now, is it possible for some of you that this sermon will feel like a kind of a water cannon? Like you just read that passage over verses 3 to 6 alone and you just have so many theological truths and you might be wondering, what does that mean? What does that mean? We got adoption, predestination, chosen. Yeah, it might feel like that to some degree, perhaps. But by the time I'm done, I, I do pray, and this is, 
Lord, just my pastoral heart, I do pray that you, Christian, will rest in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. I hope you will see the beauty of God's adoption and that you would know that you are assured of your standing before God because of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, you need to raise your hand, but if you're a Christian, you're like, yes, I follow Christ. My prayer for you is that we see the beauty of God's adoption and know that you are assured of your salvation because of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, every room I preach at, two groups of people, Christians, people who are not Christian. If you're not a Christian, I pray that this sermon, and I know it's going to land on you different, but I, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would open your heart to see and know Christ. I do pray that as we look at this particular text. So if you could join me in prayer, I need to ask for God's help, and then we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we know you're good and gracious. And I trust to know the Holy Spirit is indeed at work in this room and in this church. Lord, I pray. I pray to be faithful to what you have already spoken. I pray for these dear saints in front of me. Lord, that they would walk away knowing that you, O oh God, hold them fast. You, O oh God, have secured their salvation. And for those who do not know you, Lord, may you use these infallible words that come out of my mouth and point them to your infallible word. My words are fallible. Your word is infallible. I pray they would see you, O oh God, as good and gracious. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've, had, I've never had the joy of experiencing the opportunity to be an adoptive parent. But over the years, I've known numerous people, especially Christians who've adopted children. I've no doubt within this room, there are adopted children. I've seen parents adopt children from orphanages and from countries all around the world from extreme poverty. Uh, we have folks in our church who've, who choose to adopt children locally, right? And the motive to adopt can differ from one, of, one set of parents to the next, but there's also many, many shared experiences, right? You get adoptive parents together in a room. There's, they're talking a lot about a lot of the same things. I think it's fair to say that adoption is a good and gracious act. Whether the adoptive parents are Christian or not, I do think whatever, whoever you are, adoption means sacrifice for the parents. It means giving up some liberties to invite another human being or several human beings into your family. And as maybe some of you know, adoption is really expensive. I, I applaud anyone who gives up much to adopt a child. I really do. Earthly adoptions are, are now a powerful metaphor. So if you've experienced that or you've seen that, it's actually a powerful metaphor for spiritual adoptions. With early adoptions, we see a glimpse of a greater divine adoption. And with divine adoption comes assurance of salvation. It is easy to understand the concept of adoption. I think we all can conceptualize it at some point, right? But sometimes I think we fail to see the implications of adoption. Together, like, we see, it, we see, what, we see adoption for what it is. And then when you kind of trace that out, what are these implications? Sometimes we 
forget what those implications are. The fundamental question I think we need to answer is, what does it mean to be adopted into a family, especially a spiritual family? Were you born into a broken home, right? Maybe that was the case for you. Being adopted by God brings healing. Perhaps you're like my family, right? Right now, I'm raising my kids in a Christian home. I'm doing my level best to raise my kids in a Christian home. But you want to know what? Ultimately, at the day, I want them to know the love of God the Father. Way more than the love of Sean Powers. Now, I'm a reflection of that. I want to strive for that. Man, I want to lead them way past me. If you did not, did not grow up in a Christian home like myself, I did not grow up, grow up in a Christian home, I have really good news for you. There is a Father in heaven who is loving and gracious. My goal this morning is to help you see the beauty of adoption in God's family and also for you to know how to rest in the assurance that God does not undo what he has done. God, he doesn't throw away the adoption paperwork. He keeps his children. So adoption is not an unusual category in the Bible. It appears in the Bible, I think more than people may, may realize. Let's just take one example. Moses was adopted, right? You might remember from Exodus 2, where we read about the birth of Moses. Uh, one problem, Moses was born into slavery in Egypt, not the greatest of circumstances. Pharaoh was not excited about the Hebrew people having babies like crazy, thus increasing the Hebrew population. The growing population was a threat to Pharaoh. Therefore, Pharaoh threw down an edict saying every newborn male needs to be killed. This is Pharaoh's attempt at population control, right? So, the mother of Moses does what is in the best interest of her newborn son. She puts him in a basket and floats him down the river. It seems crazy that any mother would do this to their newborn son, but when you actually stop to think about it, what were her choices? Moses was going to die at the hands of Pharaoh, or float him down the river. Perhaps, perhaps he has a chance to live. In God's providence, as many of you know, the daughter of Pharaoh found Moses in the river. And her immediate instinct was to adopt Moses. The survival of Moses resulted in him becoming one of the most prolific figures in human history. God used an adopted child to change the world. When the book of Ephesians was written, was written the circumstances of an orphan was, was also dire. There was no foster care system like we have it today. There was no adoptive agencies you could go seek out. To be without a mother and father was to be without hope. It was to have no future. Yes, adoptions happened, but it happened in isolated situations in the first century. The Romans did have a legal procedure, and the Greeks had a legal procedure for adoption. But all in all, adoptions were rare, and they only happened if it benefited the adopted family. Here's what a Roman adoption looked like in the first century. 
It will paint a good contrast and one point of comparison with God's divine act of adoption. The motive of Roman adoption was to continue the family line and maintain property ownership. So let's say you're married, you out there, you're married, you have four children, but they're all daughters. Because you do not have a son, your good name will, will cease when you die. The property you own will also be up for grabs when you are buried or burned. That's how things went down in the first century, if you didn't have a son. Under the Roman patriarchal system, men had all the power, authority, rights, and privileges. So you can imagine how the motive for an adopted son, generally speaking, was to some degree increasingly selfish and incredibly selfish, actually. Not so with God. God's motive to adopt is selfless, not selfish. God does not adopt because he needs something from you. He adopts to bless. Because God is selfless in the adoption, his children become the beneficiaries of a gracious act, which leads to a point of comparison between Roman law and divine adoption. When a son was adopted into the Roman family, he had all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son. The same holds true within God's adoptive system. Because you've been adopted into God's family, Christian, you've been given rights and privileges far exceeding your expectations. I mean, if you just go ahead and read through Ephesians 1, it's like heavenly blessings, heavenly blessings, heavenly blessings. That's what you have, Christian, from God, a father who loves you, who adopted you. To be adopted means you are a son or daughter of the most high God. To be adopted means you are a son or daughter of the God who created the universe. We could pause that. That's a sermon in its own right. He created the universe. Now you are a son or daughter. To be adopted means that the storehouses, doors that contain heavenly blessings, that'd be verse 4 of Ephesians 1, have been opened to you. To be adopted by God means you have a father who is unselfish, who is loving and caring and has your best interest always in mind. And here's the sobering truth. Before God graciously adopted you, you were a child of wrath. Philip had mentioned that earlier. You were a child of wrath. The beginning of Ephesians 2 provides a clear distinction. And I'm going here before I get into the details of Ephesians 1 to really frame what you were now what you are. We read this in Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That was Sean Powers before God saved me, living in the passions of my flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And you, listen, look at this. You were by nature, you were by nature, before God saved you, Christian, a child of wrath. That's who you were. If you do not know the Lord, that's who you are right now. And then you get to verse 4. Verse 4 is so amazing. But God, 
But then God broke in, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us what? Made us what? Alive together with Christ. Amen. Amen. We can do this all day. Christian, you were a child of wrath, but God broke in and breathed life upon your cold, dead heart. We call that regeneration. And now you are an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God. Take note that there are only two categories of people in this world. You are either, like I mentioned, a child of wrath, which means you are an object of God's judgment because of your sin, or you are a forgiven child of God and thus an object of God's grace and mercy. And as we will see in a moment, you are a recipient also of God's assurance. You can be assured that God holds you forever. So earthly adoptions are a powerful metaphor for heavenly adoptions. And the Bible speaks clearly about temporal and spiritual adoptions. So let's take a closer look at God's benevolent will to adopt undeserving children of wrath and sons of disobedience into his loving family. I'm going to closely examine Ephesians 1. Verses 4 to 6, by asking several simple questions. When, how, and why? All you note-takers out here, here you go. When does adoption take place? How does adoption take place? Why does adoption take place? The answer to these questions reveal the assurance of faith we can have because of God's will to adopt. So I'll address these questions in order. When does adoption take place? First, we need to understand that adoption takes place kind of in an unfamiliar spot. Uh, before joining the team of folks who planted Redemption Hill Church in 2018, I was the pastor over youth in another local church. And during this uh, just a youth event, one of the students came up to me and he said, Pastor Sean, it's my gotcha day. And I'm like, that's a joke, right? Like I, know, I had no idea what she was referring to. And it was only a few minutes later when one of her friends came up to me and said, her gotcha day was the day she was adopted. So instead of a joke, it was actually a day of celebration. For this young lady, her gotcha day was actually more significant than her birthday. If you are a Christian and the sovereign God of the universe has adopted you, here is the question I want you to answer. When was your gotcha day? Your gotcha day is the most important day of your life. We read in Ephesians 1.4 that your gotcha day was purposed before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, another word is used to describe when your adoption was determined. The term used in verse 5 is closely tied to the word chosen or election, electos in the Greek, here in verse 4. Here's, here's that part of verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So, what does it mean for God to predestine you, right, to adoption, predestined? It means God marked out or determined before Genesis 1-1 that you were going to be adopted. So, before Genesis 1-1 was ever written, got Moses coming along writing it, you know. Before that, it was determined you were going to be adopted by the Most High God. It does not matter at what age you were saved. The sin you committed cannot keep you from God if he predetermined to regenerate your cold, dead heart. Predestined, or predestination, 
can be a heady theological word. Its, its meaning is undoubtedly debated among anyone who's interested in theology. People go round and round. What does this mean? So I want to dismiss at least one interpretation of predestination because if you do not have a proper understanding of predestination, it completely misses the point of adoption. A troubling interpretation of predestination is that in eternity past, God pulled out his crystal ball and looked into the future to see who would follow Jesus Christ and hence be adopted by God, right? There's one problem with this interpretation. It's just not in the Bible. I mean, I hate to, make, hate to reduce it to that, but it's just not there, right? If God did pull out a crystal ball and looked into the future to see who would become a Christian, then God did not choose. Run into a lot of problems. If God did not choose and predestine you in eternity past to be an adopted son or daughter, then we need to grab our Bibles and rip out passages. Passages like this one from Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, Romans 8 is a beautiful passage about the work of God to save. Again, does foreknow and predestined mean God pulled out the crystal ball? No, absolutely not. God foreknew and predestined you for adoption because he determined it in eternity past. Like, I'm reformed. I'm all in on reformed here. <laughs> Consider God's predestination with the terms of authorship and ownership. Who is the author of your life? You or God? God's the author of your life. Who is the owner of your life? You or God? God. Imagine with me for a moment, you're the author of a novel. Yes, you wrote a book. You wrote a book. A novel has a plot line with characters. Well, because you are the author of the book, you know the beginning from the end. You have chosen who's going to be the hero. You know, you've chosen who's going to be the evil person, right? There are characters that you highlight as good and others as bad. Well, when someone else picks up your book to read the story, the details will not suddenly change when the person reads. This is, a, this, is a, this is not a choose-your-own-adventure book. The story and the story's pieces have been determined, and all the reader needs to do is enjoy the book. So when did your adoption take place? God wrote you into his story before the foundation of the world. You were created, Christian, to be adopted. And at just the right time, God regenerated your cold, dead heart and gave you the gift of faith. And all of this was possible because God declared you justified, which is why you are now an adopted son or daughter of God. Here's the second question we need to tackle. How does adoption take place? Let's look back at our Bibles. In love... He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The short answer to the question of how is you were adopted through Christ and to Christ. It's crazy how emphatic the Greek language is when highlighting how your adoption took place. There is no escaping from the how of your adoption. It's 100% through Christ and to Christ. Let's observe some contours about how your adoption has taken place through Christ. First, 
the act of adoption is solely because of God's grace to give you faith to believe in Christ, and he declared you justified. You had no authority or power to tell God to adopt you. There was no way for you to meander your way into God's family. A person cannot conjure up the faith to believe in Christ. The same principle is true for earthly adoptions, especially young children, right? Like think about those who are infants or age one, two, three, and so forth. They have no choice, right? No one's asking them, hey, do you want to be adopted? It is only because of the will of the adoptive parents that a child is taken from the orphanage, from the hospital, and to the new family. It is by grace alone that you are a part of God's family. And I think that should humble the heart, right? Second, your adoption is a reality because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only path for God the Father to adopt was for the Son to take on the wrath of the Father for your sin and for the sin of God's elect. You've been adopted because Jesus took your place on the cross. This is straight gospel, man. Straight gospel. It was you who deserved to be on that cross. And yet, it was our sinless Savior, Jesus. And to show the world he had power over sin and death, Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we say he is risen. God the Father sacrificed his one and only Son so that you could be adopted. And you know, everything in this world has a price. If you want something, you got to give something up. God the Father gave up his son so that he could take you in as a son or daughter. So how was your adoption secured? Through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Here's a third point about how you were adopted. You were adopted because God declared your adoption. He decreed it, excuse me. He decreed your adoption. Look at the entire statement in verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according, according to what? The purpose of his will. Not your will, not my will, through the purpose of his will. One of the primary themes of Ephesians 1 is a Christian's like union with Christ. Another theme that emerges from the first half of Ephesians 1 is the sovereign will of God. In verse 5, we see the mystery of God's will and redemption was made known to his adopted children, right? The same idea is reinforced in verse 9 when it says redemption took place according to the purpose of God's will. Like if you're in Ephesians 1, you just take your finger, just go down. You also go down to verse 11 where we read this. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been what? Predestined. There's that word again. According to the purpose of him who works all things, what? According to the counsel of my will, your will, my, God's will, his will, his own will. Same Greek word is being used here throughout Ephesians 1, Thelema. It means God's will, God's desire. How did, your, how did your predestined adoption take place? According to the purpose and will of God. For some people, um, reading these verses is like experiencing a Copernican revolution. And here's what I mean. Before the 16th century, almost everyone thought that the universe as they knew it like circled around the earth because man was the center of everything, right? 
This astronomical belief informed science and informed humanity. Everyone thought they knew how astronomy worked, right? But then Nicholas Copernicus comes in, and he's like, hey guys, I got some observations to make. <laughs> and he was not well liked for his observations, by the way. What Copernicus said was significant. It was a significant paradigm shift for the day. And his observation impacted every part of life. Even though he was initially rebuffed, Copernicus was correct. The same idea holds true for some people when they are confronted with the sovereign will and purpose of God in salvation, in justification, and in adoption. The temptation is to make the how, the, the how were you saved, right? How were you adopted? The temptation is to make it me-centered, man-centered. That's the temptation. But the truth is, it's God-centered. The shift from a man-centered theology to a God-centered theology is cataclysmic. It changes everything. It changes everything. It's another Copernican revolution. It changes how you view the world. It changes how you understand your adoption as a son or daughter of God the Father. According to the sovereign will and purpose of God, he took you into his family. It would be arrogant to think that you took God into your family or you inserted yourself somehow by coming in, sneaking in the back door, perhaps. No, it's not how that happened. So how are Christians adopted the how into God's family by the sovereign will of God through the atoning work of Christ. Last question. Again, these three questions are leading to an understanding of what it means to be assured of our salvation. Why does adoption take place? That's the last question. There are several reasons why you were adopted. For a moment, look at Ephesians 1-4 again. If you're reading from the ESV, what are the last two words of the verse? Like there's a period and then got the two words, in love, right? In love. Now, full disclosure, there's some debate about where in love belongs, what's, what's it necessarily qualifying. So I, I address that in other sermons, but here's what I'm going with for this sermon. Here's what I believe. In love, the love of God the Father for you is so overwhelming that in your place, he gave his son Jesus Christ to suffer and die. The how of your adoption is holy and entirely because of God's will through the son, and the why of adoption is because Get this, because God loves you. Like that. You know, in my own head, I overcomplicate so many things in my life. I really do. Like, getting out of my own head is sometimes difficult. But this is one of those moments where it's actually quite simple. God decreed your adoption, saved you, justified you, because he loves you. It's actually quite simple. He loves you. The Father loves you so much, he sacrificed his son. His son. The sum of who God is, is love. I had mentioned that one of the patterns of Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, is that you repeatedly read in him, in Christ, over and over again. If you just start reading that, it's like in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ. And it's talking about all the benefits in which you see, receive or have had because you are in him or in Christ. The pattern is actually slightly altered when we see the words at the end of verse 4, in love. In love, God predestined you for adoption. Again, we read that when, uh, we see, again, right here we see the why. Why were you adopted? Because God, God loves you. 
The point is reinforced with verse 6. Take a look. He has blessed you in the beloved. Now, this is a bit confusing in the English, but it literally says God's adopted children have been blessed with heavenly blessings in the beloved one. Some translations use it, do it that way. Beloved one. I think that's making the point. The beloved one is Jesus Christ. Once you are in the beloved one, you are always in the beloved one. One of the fantastic consequences of adoption is that you cannot become unadopted. Everything I've said up to this point is leading me to right here. You cannot become unadopted. Once again, let's dial into the comparison between the sweet picture of an earthly adoption with a heavenly adoption. I've never met an adoptive parent, and I'm not saying they're not out there, but personally, I've never met an adoptive parent who, once they have signed the adoption papers, proceeded to rip them up at some point in the future. When parents adopt a child, they know it's for life. Even though there are ups and downs with parenting, right? That, that's part of parenting in general. There are ups and downs. They know they are in it until the very end. They're not going back. There's no unsigning of the adoption paperwork. They're not looking for the paper shredder. With God, the point is more pronounced. God will keep his adopted sons and daughters until the end, physical death, but God keeps them forever, for all eternity. God's gracious and loving grip on you, Christian, is far greater than your grip on him. I think that's a really good statement because so often we strive, and in many respects, we need to, we need to walk, out, uh, walk out our salvation, right? We want to walk out our faith, but we know there are ups and downs. And it's when you're down that you realize God's grip on me is far greater than my grip on him. Over the last year, I have been inserting, inserting our denominational confession of faith into sermons and other aspects of our local church. I know this is a bit of a plug, but it applies to what we read in Ephesians 1. Now, I, I appreciate being a part of confessional denomination because of the depth and breadth of our theology. We have 35 chapters or sections in our confession of faith. Chapter 14 is about adoption. That's wonderful. We have an entire section on adoption. And then chapter 20 is entitled, The Assurance of Grace and Salvation. Here's a short snippet of what our confession says about assurance. Although false professors and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and fleshy presumptions of being in favor of God and the state of salvation, their hope will perish. Now before I continue, that's a very sobering comment, but actually maps on to what we know about life. Right? I got a friend who was a pastor, and then he walked away. He was really not of God. Right? So this is a sobering truth. That's good. We need, to, we need to be sobered by God's truth. But we continue with our confession. Yet those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace. They can rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and this hope will never make them ashamed. Man, there's a lot of goodness right there, a lot of truth packed right there in our confession of faith, what it means to be assured as adopted sons or daughters of God. 
One aspect of God's goodness and adoption is that you can be assured and rest upon God's saving grace. You can rest. You can be at ease. I read a story about a woman who wrestled with adoption and assurance. Her story highlights God's securing grace in light of adoption. I'm going to share what this church-going woman says, and I quote, she says, adoption is attractive to me because it is the perfect antidote to legalism. Legalism was the driving force in my life. I kept trying to be good enough for God, but despaired at how impossible the tasks were. At the very heart, I was afraid of one thing. At some point, I would do something terrible and consequently lose my salvation. That's how I grew up. If I did that one thing the wrong way, or if I didn't do enough good things, I was damned to hell. Although the church I was raised in preached assurance of salvation, I often wondered if I believed it mostly because I wanted it to be true. The confusion came from the fact that although the churches I attended said they believed in assurance of salvation, they preached a list of things one had to do to, quote, be a good Christian. I got the feeling that if you failed in any of those areas, you probably were not saved to begin with. I mean, that's, that's crushing. That is absolutely crushing. If everything that you got to do in life is contingent upon you being saved, that is, a, that is a boulder on your back that you can never take off. No grace. None. She continues, The study of adoption has clarified the confusion I once felt. Adoption is a legal procedure which secures a child's identity in a new family. God did not choose to be our foster parent. We don't get kicked out of the family because of our behavior. We don't have to worry day to day whether or not we are good enough to be part of the family. In his infinite kindness, God made us a permanent part of his family. Nothing can undo the legal procedure that binds me to Christ. He died to redeem me. He signed the adoption paperwork, so to speak, with his blood. Nothing can cancel the work he did for me. I'm free from the fear of falling away. Hallelujah. And I would answer and add, amen. You too, Christian, are freed from the fear of falling away. And you can bask in the loving kindness of God because of your adoption. I mean, I should point out that the assurance of salvation does not give an adopted child of God a license to sin. That's where some people go. I'm in the family, I'm all good, and that's not what's going on. Shall I go on sinning so that grace may abound? Romans 6, 1, Paul says, by no means. No, that's not what's going on. An adopted child of God is given the freedom to live for God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to fight against sin and to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. One final reason why your adoption has taken place is that the glory of God will be seen in your life. Uh, the NASB says it plainly, you were adopted to the praise of the glory of his grace. God's glory begins to be reflected and refracted in your life when God brings you into his family. The moment you went from an orphan to a child of the Most High God, glory began to shine upon you, through you, and off you. And this leads us back to what we read in verse 3. We bless and praise God for what he has done for us. We worship and glorify God. Without a doubt, all Ephesians 1 
Everything we read in this particular chapter leads us to where? To worship and to thank God. I'll end by telling you in brief my journey to Reformed theology more general, but these precious truths that I've been telling you this morning. God the Holy Spirit breathed life onto my cold, dead heart in my early 20s. Prior to that, I was a child of wrath, right? And I, and I lived that to the tilt. I was converted and given the gift of faith and repentance. It was not long before I began attending and getting plugged into a local church, right? And I started reading my Bible, right? Here's one of the things that was kind of intimidating at the moment. Like, I'd never read the Bible before. Like, what is going on here? And at one point, shortly after the Lord saved me, I began to make my way through the Gospel of John. And John 10 changed everything I knew about how I was saved and how I will be kept by Christ forever. Here are the words that rocked my world. And perhaps for some of you, it's just going to rock your world. We read from our Lord Jesus, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, hear about that intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. I know my Father and he knows me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have others, other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them, them in also. And they will, they will, not might, not maybe, they will listen to my voice. So there is to be one flock, one shepherd. And then several verses later, our Lord continues. Same theme. The sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will, not maybe, not perhaps, not if you make good on the lottery. No, they will never perish. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. If that doesn't scream assurance, I don't know what does. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We don't read the word adoption in these passages, but we see what it looks like. The good shepherd must bring his sheep into the sheepfold. There are sheep not currently in the sheepfold who will respond when they finally hear the voice of their shepherd. We don't read the word assurance in this passage or these passages, but we do see what it looks like. Once the sheep are in the sheepfold, they will never perish. They will never perish. The electing love of the Father ensures that no one will snatch the sheep out of the Father's hand. John 10 and Ephesians 1 help you to see the beauty of adoption. Yes, spent a much time on adoption, but also, also helps you see how to know to rest in the assurance that God does not undo or throw away the adoption paperwork. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that is also clear. And from the beauties and all the glorious stones that can be unturned in Ephesians 1, 
my prayer for these precious saints in front of me, that they would rest, knowing that you are a good and gracious Father who has indeed adopted them into your family. And they can rest knowing that their faith in Jesus Christ is indeed true and real. And because of Christ, they can rest secure. I pray for my friends in front of me who do not know you. Who do not believe that Jesus Christ is indeed a Savior. That he indeed lived the sinless life. And the Son of God died on a cross for the sin of his people but he rose from the grave, proving he's more powerful than sin and death. I pray for these precious friends in front of me, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would draw them to you and you would reveal Christ to their heart. That indeed today may be a day they would say, yes, this is my gotcha day. We pray this in the only name that we can pray, in Jesus' name.